Thanks, AJ. So again, if you are uh, joining us for the first time or for if it's been a little while, you're kind of jumping back into things, we are in uh, the second week of our series now in Leviticus. We've been walking through the Pentateuch uh, since last September, uh, and that's been just really great. I hope you've been enjoying it as well, just seeing really this overarching story of God's people, of who God is, and the story of redemption of his people, and, to, and this hope and promise of a child, the promise of a Savior that will come one day, who will restore the people and bring them into this new land to dwell with him. This is that overarching uh, story arc, narrative there. Now, when we get to, the, to Leviticus and Numbers here in the, in, the, in, the, in the summer, the narratives really start to go away, and we really enter into a text of laws and really descriptions of things. And so we're hitting them in terms of topics then as we, because there's not really any narratives to walk through. And so like last week when we started Leviticus, we talked about why a priesthood, right? We talked about that God's intention from the beginning in Exodus, he told the people, I will make you a nation of priests, but they end up as a nation with priests, this one tribe, the Levites now, and really as a response to their idolatry and the worship of the golden calf at the bottom of the mountain. They won't go up to the mountain to see God. They're afraid. And so God now intervenes on their behalf and gives them the priests, right? He's still going to fulfill his plans for his people. They will be a holy nation, but he's going to continue to remind them of that intention through the priests, through this now one tribe, the Levites, and now, this week, really we want to talk about this question then of like, well, so why all these rituals and sacrifices in Leviticus? Why this? Because before this, they didn't have a lot of these. They really, the law was fairly straightforward for them. You know, it was really not very many things to do or to follow. Their only real law that was given to the people was Passover, kind of a once a year, have a feast remembering me as Yahweh and how I delivered you from Egypt. That's it. It's the only thing. But it seems now, especially here in Leviticus, things start to ramp up in terms of laws and sacrifices, rituals, feasts and celebrations. It just continues to grow and grow and grow. And so we have to ask the question, right, why? Why all of these rituals? Why this animal sacrifice in particular, which is a real turnoff to the modern reader, right? I mean, that is really when we start to get into this book and you're kind of like, all right, how much blood are you sprinkling everywhere? And why, why the killing of all of these animals? You know, right? I mean, why just kill a bull? Why just kill a goat? I mean, what, what, what's going on? Why, why the killing of so many animals? Why this blood sprinkling? Why the different sacrifices and rituals for the different things? So that's really what this sermon is about. And we're looking at Leviticus 16, the day of the day of atonement, as one of many, because really. Throughout Leviticus, and if you haven't read all Leviticus, you know, feel free. It's a fun read. But if you haven't, you, you can certainly look. The beginning of Leviticus and the end of Leviticus really deal with sacrifices. And the first several chapters of Leviticus spell out a lot of different types of sacrifices. And in Leviticus, there really are five main types of sacrifices that are offered to the people. Like, here's what you are to do, Israel. Levites, teach the people these things. These are the types of sacrifices you should have. One is burnt offerings. You are to burn parts of animals as a burnt offering to the Lord. Most of the times with the organs that you wouldn't eat anyway, but they're to be burnt. This is a burnt offering. And they're given for atonement for sin. 
in, in particular for unintentional sins. Because you, you may not know, it's a, it's a way in which to cleanse a con- this could, anytime you could go to the temple with your animal, offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord to atone for your sins, intentional or unintentional, right? Because it, they, it's working with the assumption that, right, I have probably broken. And again, that re- atonement idea is like kind of to fix things that have been broken, right? If we're all honest, right, I have, I've messed up things. I have broken relationships with people intentionally, but I've also broken relationships with people and things unintentionally. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know I was doing this until it's too late. And so the burnt offering was a way of the people to make atonement for intentional sins and unintentional sins in which it was burnt. So parts of the animal would have been burnt. Uh, The hide of the animal would go to the Levites for all the burnt offerings. They would keep the hides because this is the only way the Levite, the entire tribe of the Levites is going to have an income, right? Their, their whole full-time job is priests. So where are they getting food and money and all those things? They're getting, well, they're getting the hides of the animals and they're getting meat from these animals as well uh, to feed their tribe. So they get the, for, so burnt offerings was the first one. From that one, it's for atonement for sins at any time. There's grain offerings. So this would be like cakes, bread, you're making things, you'd bring this to the, to the Lord as well. Go into the tabernacle and you offer a burnt offering, or not a burnt offering, a grain offering, which is really just giving thanks to the Lord. This wasn't burned, but part of it would go to the Levites. It'd be kind of lifted up and given back to the person, right? I've given, I'm giving thanks to the Lord. He has bountifully blessed us, right? I've baked a cake. You know, like we do this today, right? Where you like bake something and you want to just give a portion, to someone, to your neighbor, or someone good, right? You go to the tabernacle, you give a portion to the Levites. It is an offering to the Lord, this, this bread, this cake that has been given. Uh, and that could be done anytime, right? Give thanks. I just want to give thanks to the Lord. So I'm going to go to the tabernacle and give thanks with what I have baked. There are peace offerings. This would be the third kind. Again, anytime this could be done. And this is really just centers around thanksgiving and fellowship, where you would go with any animal, but this, the purpose of this time is for a communal feast or to eat together with your whole family or with others. Where you're like, I, this is a peace offering, right? This is going to lead to fellowship. The Levites, again, would get choice cuts from that animal. You know, if it's a, like a pigeon or things, they would get like a breast of it. If it's a ram or something like that, they would get like a front leg. You know, the Levite gets a choice cut, but then the rest of the meat gets served to the community. It's going to be a big feast, but the Levite gets a cut because, again, their only way they're going to feed themselves is to take from these animals that are coming. Um, the fourth is a sin offering. And this one we're going to, well, yeah, well, I'll hit it now. The fourth is a sin offering. And again, this is to atone for sin. And it's not just the unintentional ones. Like that first burnt offering is really like just, right, like I'm just covering my bases. I'm assuming I am a sinner. Right? Very New Testament, like but sin is always before me. I, I know I'm hurting people. I know I have messed up. I need to. The sin offering would be much more, it wouldn't be a regular thing, but it'd be a once a year thing, right? This atonement, day of atonement idea, which is what we read here from Leviticus 16. Dealing with sin as a serious ritual. Like we're going to do this once a year. Everyone is going to make a serious atonement for their sins. And it's going to be on a sliding scale. When you have, so for Aaron, right, you, you're going to have, he had to sacrifice a bull, which is the most expensive of the animals. The priests, the Levites, if you, on this once a year, you're going to have to offer up parts of the most, you're going to have to kill one of the most expensive animals, the livestock. And then it goes down from there, from a bull to, 
to next would be a male goat to a female goat. Uh, if you don't have enough money for those, because again, this is a, I mean, this is a society built around, right? Their wealth is in their livestock, um, right? If you don't have that kind of means to offer a goat, then it could be, it could go all the way down to like a pigeon. A, you know, that's a pretty easy one. Or even down to just a handful of flour you could offer as a, the atonement for all of your sin could just be a handful of flour, right, which would have been very, very inexpensive and you'd be able to get. But once a year, we'll make atonement for sins. Parts of the animals, again, would have been burned, especially the organs, things that are not going to be eaten anyway. Um, and then, again, the, the choice meats of all of those animals that were offered on the Day of Atonement would be given to the Levites, but then other meats would then be given back to the person who brought the animal so that they could eat it with their family uh, and almost all the time, it always kind of coincides. They're, they're very much feast-related as well, the sacrifices. You know, you do sacrifice, but then that meat, you bring your animal basically to the priests. And, and you almost have to think, as a modern reader, it's difficult for us, but it's almost like thinking of the priests as butchers, right? Like, this is how you're going to process your animals. You know, I will bring my livestock to the tabernacle, and I will have the priests kill my animal for me in a way Right, that glorifies the Lord. There will be offerings of this given. Thanksgiving will be given. The meat will come back to the people or go into the communal feast if this is the Day of Atonement, this year-long, this big festival, or if it's Passover, or all these different things. Um, so this once-a-year sin offering. And the fifth and final one was the trespass offering. And this one was for unintentional sin, again. So they have two of them just for unintentional sin, which should really start to make our minds think about, like, what is sin and what is not sin, you know, I mean, like, Israel really already, God is impressing upon them this idea of, like, sin is always in front of you. You are a sinful people, intentionally, unintentionally. A trespass sin is where you have unintentionally trespassed against somebody, but there needs to be some repayment for it. That would be the trespass sin, Um, especially under sickness, like, you were sick and you spread it to someone else. You made someone unclean and you didn't know it, Kind of saying, I, I need to make this right. You know, like, I didn't know what I did. I didn't know I hurt your family in the way that I hurt them. I didn't know I had, it had this effect. And so you would go, and for that one, it had to be a ram every time. Not quite sure why, but it has to be a ram. <laughs> you offer a ram, organs burned again, meat would be devoured and eaten by the people. And again, almost all of them have a very individual level and a communal level to the sacrificial systems. And to make sense of all of this, you know, you, you really do have to remember a few things to make sense of the sacrificial systems. Because again, to a modern reader, this all sounds really weird and strange and odd. The killing of animals, the burning parts, giving others to other people, sprinkling blood on things, that blood is important. You know, all, all of that to us seems odd. But there's a couple of things that we really have to keep in mind that helps to keep this in its context and helpful for us. The first is really the raising and killing of livestock, daily part of their lives. This, this is who these people are. As a Bedouin people, right, they are migratory, they are transitory through these lands. They are with the, they're going oasis to oasis with livestock, right? I mean, this is almost maybe a half a million people. They have livestock, they have to feed the people. They can't live off the land. The land is not providing. This isn't, they're not in the land of milk and honey yet. But, rather, so, but they can travel, and they still do. Bedouins today still travel through this area with their goats and their heifers and all these things, right, from, 
from oasis to oasis, feeding, but it's precious. Livestock is precious in this kind of an environment. You can't just go into town and buy some more goats or some more bulls. You're raising these animals, and they have a significance. But also, as a culture and a people, they're used to the killing of animals, right? We are not, right? We, 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 we don't know where our food always comes from, right? I go to Costco for my meat. I, don't, I didn't slaughter that, that bull or whatever, right, to get that meat. I don't know where that chicken was raised. I just go and buy the meat. I don't know how it was processed. I don't know if it was processed in a way that glorified the Lord. Probably wasn't, right? But I just take that meat. If you grow up in this society, and many of you have, right, on farms that have had livestock and things, I mean, you know this process, and you know the thankfulness that there is for bountiful harvests, and the significance of killing an animal is not a light thing to do, and it has a cost, but it also feeds. You know, it's a, it's a significant deal. And that's this, these people's lives, is the raising and killing of animals. And so it's foreign to us, but to them and to others in this context or in other parts of the world, right, that the understanding for, <clears throat> excuse me, a need for orderly processing of animals is really important. Not everyone can just kill animals willy-nilly when they want to, how they want to. You need, a, a, you need order. You need a process for these things that will feed the people, that will direct the people. We also have to remember, besides that, just kind of getting into this kind of mindset of a more livestock-based culture, we also have to remember the rest of the story of the Pentateuch, which, again, can escape our minds very, very quickly. You know, we were talking this last week a little bit of like, you know, oh, I can't quite remember two Sundays ago, but I remember... One Sunday ago, I remember, and it's easy to forget, but, you know, all the way through the Pentateuch, right, we, from the very beginning, there has been life and death and bloodshed, and the covering over of, with the death of animals has been necessary from the beginning. If you think of even Adam and Eve, and how God fashioned for them animal skins to cover their nakedness, you know, like, from the beginning, the, there has been a significance to, the, to death and to blood covering over things. From Adam and Eve, to the shedding of blood with Cain and Abel, to Noah right off the boat, kills and animals as a sacrifice to the Lord, um, to Abraham and Isaac, right? The sacrifice moment, this moment of shedding blood and a ram being provided, uh, to the Passover, right? Which would be fresh in the reader's mind of this blood that was put on the doorpost, right, to make the, have the angel pass over. So there's, this isn't coming out of nowhere in Leviticus all of a sudden. It's not like all of a sudden we're getting to this new idea that blood is shed to cover over or that sacrifices are needed or shown this kind of this presence or idea. This is a developing theme and narrative throughout the Pentateuch, and it's really being explained or given much more tangible, concrete daily significance to the Israelites here at Mount Sinai. So the sacrificial system, to kind of get into that big why of it, right? The sacrificial system really is a way for God to show his people very tangibly and concretely who he was and who they were in a very daily way, in a way that as a nation they will participate in with the very food that they eat with their most valuable resources, they will daily experience their God and what he is in the business of doing, which is atonement, which is, excuse me, <clears throat> which is this like fixing things 
right, with this, this purifying thing. This is a God who can fix anything. This is a God who purifies anything. This is a God who is actively working to make them a holy nation. In the very day-to-day life, with their most valuable resources, they will see these things. That their God is unlike all other gods. That there is nothing that can't be made right. There is no sin, intentional or unintentional, that cannot be made right. There is nothing that can't be fixed. There is nothing that can't be purified. Everything, anything can be pure. No matter how tainted and ugly and diseased it was, there is a way through blood to make it pure. This is going to be reminded to them constantly. All things and all people, no exceptions, from the high priest to the lowest person in the camp, same atonement. Right? Everything, every person will be atoned for whether they want to or not, with this scapegoat idea that we read out of this one, right? Aaron will do it. Everyone will be atoned for. Everything will be forgiven. Everything, there's nothing outside of God's ability to fix and to restore. And that big idea of purify, not just restore it, but clean it. Nothing can't be cleaned through the blood. So we have this picture then, and this is, again, the whole Pentateuch, of really wanting to see God unlike all of the other gods. This is a God who provides atonement and purification rather than a God who requires appeasement and, like, placating, right? Like, he doesn't demand from the people, right, I'm angry at you, and I need you to sacrifice, or I will smite you. That's not this God, This God is constantly providing ways to appease their conscience, to cleanse the people. The sacrificial system is for the people, it's not for God. Right, and that's even with the Day of Atonement. It started with that little little story, and it's earlier, of after the death of Moses' sons, who died in the presence of the Lord. Right away, once the priesthood is established, Moses' sons, who are now the priests, get drunk and go into the Holy of Holies. I mean, they, they defile it. And you're again instantly like, oh, here we go. See, this system is, it's a terrible plan, God, right? The, the very priests who you thought, you know, who gave us as reminders of you get drunk and do terrible things in the tabernacle and they get killed by God. And now you think, oh, it's over. Nope. God provides atonement for that. He provides atonement for Aaron. Right? He, I mean, because the, the guilt and the shame Aaron must have felt, I mean, first for the golden calf, and now for his sons. Right? Every year, Aaron will experience atonement. Every year, Aaron will put the sins of him and his family on that bull, and that will be killed. And then he will put the sins of the whole people on that goat, and it will be sent off. Right? Like, every year, just the gift of that alone to Aaron and to the Levites to know the atonement, because they have messed up multiple times already in a very short period, and not little mess-ups, colossal, covenant-breaking mess-ups. They will know God's atonement and purification. And same for the people. Every year, they will know this atonement. They will know what it's like for things to be restored. The system, <coughs> excuse me, the system speaks 
to a hope of a restored world. Like, because I think we have this question, all of us in existence, and they did too, right? And as you read, as a, as a reader, you have the question, like, can this get fixed? Can this break of the relationship between God and this people ever get fixed? But even for us, there's a lot of things in our world, right, where you're just like, that will never get fixed. There's no way. It's too far. It, too much has gone on. Too many broken promises have been made. Too many sins have been done. Like, I will never be friends with that person again. Or I would never, this, this, these people are dead to me. This is done. It's just, it's broken. There's too much broken. Everything's too broken. Nothing could ever get fixed. Intentionally, unintentionally, nothing could get fixed. But the rituals and the sacrifices are meant to give hope for a restored existence and for clean consciences. To unite people together in a shared identity and in a restored state. That they would experience as a people what it feels like to have things atoned for, fixed. And to feel pure. Like what would that feel like as a people? And they have these daily and yearly reminders. And to be together as a people that have been atoned and purified. They were never meant to save the people, right? You just can't get that out of the reading of the text, that this was ever designed as a saving experience for them. Because otherwise, I mean, why the unintentional sin things? You know, why do you have to keep doing it? Like, it, it's not meant to save them. This is not, that, that narrative exists within Christianity of kind of a, they had to do the sacrificial systems to appease God or for God to be pleased with them, right? God is holy and just, and the people are sinful, and so they have to do this, otherwise they can't be with God, but that just isn't in the text. Right? He wanted them to all come up to the mountain. He knew that who they were. They'd grumbled and sinned and complained up until this point. The people won't trust God. And so God enters into their midst in the tabernacle. God gives them the sacrificial systems to cleanse them, to purify them. It's for them. It's not for God. And so you have this, it, it was never meant to be a means of salvation, but a means of the people being able to experience God in ways that they could handle and understand because they were, because of their guilt and their shame, unable to really trust who God is, which is us, right? Because of my guilt and my shame, I draw back and I fear God. So how can that be done? And it was a regularly done thing. And it was assumed in Leviticus that they wouldn't do it well and they wouldn't do it often, which is why there was all these other ways and other sacrifices to give for when if you failed to do that so that you could do this one. Yeah, it just, it never was the idea that they would perfectly do this, everything's done, I get it, I only have to do it if I mess up. You just always have to do this. It's a continual, continual thing. It was a means by which as a nation they would experience redemption and atonement together and have that hope for a restored world. They know that one day that promised child is coming. They know one day a land is coming. And one day everything will be restored. And they will dwell with God in holiness, fixed and purified. And so the sacrificial system is a way for them to experience that in the day-to-day now in the desert, before they get to the land, before they get to God. And really to long for a day, right, when the rituals would no longer be needed. They were given the rituals and the sacrifices, and they're thankful for them, as they should be. But longing for a day when they would no longer be needed. Because everything would be atoned for. Everything would be put right. 
and there would no longer need to be these sacrifices constantly given, which gives hope, strength, and confidence to them as a people because the calling of Leviticus is you're going to go into this land and you are to be a holy people, right? A people unlike any other people. Just like your God is unlike any other God, you will be a people unlike any other people. How? Because they are going to be a people who have hope, who are able to love because they know who their God is, that their God fixes everything, that their God redeems everything, that their God loves them unlike anything. So they now can be a people unlike any other people because they've been loved unlike any other people have ever been loved because they have this God of justice and of love. And these rituals and sacrifices, I think, still speak to us today as a people. Even again, like Leviticus feels hard to read and hard to understand. But really, right, it's, it is pretty straightforward. The, the world today is desperate for atonement. I mean, the world is desperate for ways to atone and purify, like to fix things, right? Everyone recognizes and sees the brokenness. Everyone feels brokenness in their relationships, in their families, in their work, in the city, in everywhere. There's, there's brokenness. It's busted. And, and we have done things, right? If we're really honest with ourselves, we have done things to break it. We have broken relationships with others. We have sinned against others. We've sinned against God intentionally and unintentionally, right? Things are messed up, and the world feels that, whether they are believers or not. And there's really an incredibly strong desire, too, for that to be clean, to be purified. Like, I mean, I know I've broken a lot, and I don't even know if that could get fixed, but somehow I need to think of myself, though. I can't, I, I, I want to cleanse my mind or my vision of myself or my image of myself. I, I can't think of myself that way. So there's, on the one hand, our culture has an incredibly strong desire to try to fix things, right? Everybody wants it to get fixed. And if that's in a personal life, like therapy will fix me, or if it's the idea of like politics will fix this, a, the right or a job will fix this, or a house will fix this. I mean, whatever. But if you find something to fix, I want to fix this. If I can just get these things fixed, right, there's that. And then there's still also this incredibly strong desire then for that purification of, like, to be cleansed. Like, I, I, I need to be clean. I got blood on my hands. Very, you know, Shakespearean. Right? We, we feel it, though. Like, I feel like I've got blood on my hands. I, I know I do, and I just can't get it off. So what can I do to get this off? What can I do to make myself feel clean? To not remember the things that I've done? To not think about the things others have done to me? Right? So we, we have, as a culture and as a people, we have plenty of rituals. We have plenty of sacrifices we make to try to atone and try to purify ourselves. Some of them are healthy or healthier than others. Right? If it's exercise, if it's throwing ourselves into work, Right, if it's going to counseling or therapy, I mean, these are these are good things, right? They're rituals, right? Very strict rituals for many people, right? I have to ex I exercise every morning at this time, or I do this every week at this time, or every year I go on this thing. I do. We make rituals <laughs> to purify and to cleanse, to atone, you know, and we put a lot of hope in those things. This will fix it, or at least distract me, right? Some of our rituals and sacrifices are not healthy at all, right? We go straight to distractions, um, never sit with my thoughts, right? I don't want to enter into any of those things, I, I, or I go into medication, right? I just make myself feel clean, <laughs> whether or not I am clean. I know I'll never get clean, so at least this makes me feel good. 
So I'm going to do it in that moment, or we give in to just anger. Sometimes anger really helps to make us feel righteous. You know, if we can yell at someone or just in our hearts be mad at people for our situation or for the way things are broken. Um, right? We're all, as a culture, we have no shortages of options to purify and to atone. But none of these are lasting. Right? None of the sacrificial systems that we have as a people, Israel's or ours, are lasting. They never last. We eventually lose hope that things could ever be fixed or that we could ever be clean. Because we try. We try these things. And it never really fully works. And we lose hope. Where the good news, then, of the gospel just cuts right to the heart for all of us, right? Because the good news of the gospel is that if you've read, you read your New Testament at all, the book of Colossians or the, any of the books of the New Testament, really, right, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is nothing that can't be fixed. In fact, there's nothing that hasn't been fixed, including us. Right, Jesus Christ is this final and ultimate sacrifice for us. It's how he saw himself. Right? It's how he spoke of himself in the Gospels, as the sacrificial lamb, as this ultimate sacrifice at the Passover dinner throughout his life. I mean, John the Baptist will say it about him. Look at this guy. This is the lamb. This is it. This is the one final animal that will be sacrificed for sin and to atone and to purify all things. And he made everything right. Everything. This is the book of Colossians. There is nothing that hasn't been made right because of Jesus Christ's death. He's atoned for it. His death, he paid the price for all of the brokenness of our world. All of the brokenness in our lives, all of the broken relationships, Christ has fixed. He's paid the price for. He's remedied it. And not just fixed, he's also cleansed. Right? He's also cleansed us and washed us. Right? When when we died, when Christ died, I died. When Christ rose, I rose. I am not my sin any longer. We've been given this new cleansed identity. We don't need this daily rituals any longer. We don't need to rely on if it's exercise or therapy or if it's Netflix or drugs. We don't, we don't have to, those things don't work anyway, nor do I have to rely on them to purify myself because I've been purified. I am clean. I have been atoned for. I don't have to try to fix everything in my life because it has been fixed. Christ has made peace. I can now live as a person who has been cleaned and who believes that the world has been restored. If the gospel is true and all things have been atoned for, past and future, that we have been cleaned, then those who experience that freedom, right, who have been experienced the freedom of the gospel, truly are unlike any other people, right? That's because that's crazy. It's crazy to believe this. It's crazy to live like that, that I'm clean. It's like, don't you know the things that you've done? How can you believe that you're clean? How can you, believe, how can you be at peace with others, even if they've sinned against you? Why aren't you, hold that, why aren't you angry? Why aren't you hold that against them? Why are you able to forgive? What, what's, what, how are you able to do this as a people? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, there's really no other way to live that way without believing that everything has been atoned for and that I have been made clean and I am not my sin. 
no longer constantly needing to atone and purify. Because the gospel isn't that we need to do something to be holy. Again, it's this religion always kind of taints this, and there's a really strong feeling within Christianity that Leviticus in the Old Testament tells us, look, Jesus forgave you. Yeah, that's great. I've been forgiven, but I, I'm a, it's up to me to like make myself, like I got to do something now. I've been forgiven. I know that. I know that. But I need to fix everything in my life. I need to fix myself. I'm, brus- I'm broken. I'm not that great. I need to become greater. I need to fix this. God's forgiven. I know that. I know that. I know that. Thank God. I'm going to go to heaven one day. I know that. But I need to do all this fixing. I need to do all this atoning, purifying work in my life. That just isn't true. That just isn't the gospel. Even in the Israelites, for the Levitical system, they didn't purify themselves. God does. They just had to offer up a handful of flour. It's not, they're not doing anything. God purifies. God atones for. It's not that he, he has forgiven us, but he has also made us holy. We are holy because of what Christ has done. It's a finished work that we now live in. As a holy and loving people, living as a people who have been cleansed and with confidence that there are no wrongs that haven't been restored. And as Christians, the rituals haven't completely ended, right? We have two. Jesus gives us two rituals still. So here's the two things I still want you to do. The rest is gone, right? I fulfilled them all. You don't need to do any of the rest because I was the ultimate sacrificial lamb. You don't have to make sacrifices anymore. You don't have to go through the rituals. But I want you to do two rituals still. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Just do those two, right? And that's it. Because in our baptisms, when we see others get baptized, when we ourselves have been baptized, right, it reminds us, right, it cleanses, of the cleansing power, the purification that happens, this renaming ceremony of who we are and what has happened to us. And then taking the Lord's Supper together points us to the future, right, that future meal with the Lamb. Points us backwards to the sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of his blood, and the fixing of all things. And the hope for a restored future where we will all one day feast at that table together with hearts, lives, everything restored. All wrongs will be forgotten. And the reality of that will be finally fully experienced. We need these reminders. We need these rituals. And so as a Right, Jesus said, this is the things that you are to do. The New Testament writers, right, continue, Paul, the author of Hebrews, continue to meet to do these things because we are a forgetful people who need to be reminded. We look back, we look forward, and when we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice and of our new birth, right, we grow in our hope, in our confidence, in the future, and in our day-to-day life because the gospel is not just about one day, but it provides hope for the day-to-day. And I really believe that Christ has reconciled all things and made atonement for all things and has purified me. And we live in that reality. We live then as a holy people that is unlike any other people in this world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and just praise you and worship you for who you are. Who are we that you would love us uh, so much? 
that you would care for us, that you would fix this broken world, that you would restore us, cleanse us, and purify us. Lord, you did all these things before we even asked for it. Lord, before we even sought you, you sought us. Uh, Lord, just like the nation of Israel. Lord, we pray and just ask that you will strengthen in us that experience and security, the sense of our atonement. Lord, that we would have that resting and confidence in you, knowing that you have reconciled all things, to give us that freedom to trust you, to live wholeheartedly with you, to give you our brokenness, knowing that you have already fixed it, and that you are working all things, and that one day all things will be made right. Lord, we also just pray and ask you will strengthen our experience of our purification of our being washed in the water. Lord, that we would, we would have hope and strength and confidence knowing that we are not our sin, but rather that we are holy and blameless in your sight, that you are near to us and that you go before us, that we are loved and cherished. There's nothing we can do to make you love us less or to make your sacrifice for us not count. Lord, grow us as a people in hope, in confidence, and in love. Lord, you are holy. There is no God like you. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us into a holy nation, a holy people, a people unlike any other people. Lord, help us, strengthen us in that calling, and strengthen us in our faith and trust and our wholehearted lives looking to you as the source of our hope and faith and security and ability to live this life. Lord, we worship you and we thank you. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, our high priest and great sacrifice on our behalf, Jesus Christ. Amen.